Let's take a look this morning at Romans chapter 10 and 11 together. So, my kids love history. This last week we talked a lot about presidents, which ones were cool, which ones weren't, where they blew it, what they did good. I want to share with you guys this morning a little bit of what went down during the presidency of Andrew Jackson. There was a guy by the name of George Wilson. He was a postal clerk. He robbed a federal payroll uh, from a train, and in the process, he killed one of the guards. The court convicted him and sentenced him to be hung. Now, because of public sentiment against capital punishment, however, the movement began to secure a presidential pardon for Wilson, okay, his first offense. Eventually, Jackson intervened with a pardon. Amazingly, Wilson refused it. Since this had never happened before, the Supreme Court was asked to rule on whether someone indeed could refuse a presidential pardon. Well, Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's decision, and he said this, A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from the receiver in which he gives it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would not do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. And George Wilson was punished for his crime, and he was hung. Pardon, declared the Supreme Court, must only be granted, but it also must be accepted. You guys know where I'm going with this? You guys, as we jump in to Romans 10 and 11 this morning, we've looked at chapter 9 already, and we looked at Israel's past election together this morning. We're going to look at their present uh, rejection of the Messiah in chapter 10. And then verse 11, we're going to look at the future reception for Israel. So how many of you guys have heard of the Romans road before? Okay, I love because really chapter 10 here kind of concludes and brings that all together for you and I. So let's look here at chapter 10 of Romans, and we're right off the bat going to look at a prayer here. Okay, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So I love the prayer here in verse 1. Okay, Paul prays for Israel's salvation. You guys know that evangelism is a privilege and it's God's burden because he's Savior. Okay, so don't get those mixed up. It is a privilege for us, okay? And God's doing the saving. Evangelism, guys, why are we still here? Because there's a world that needs to hear. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. So, preach. As Richard Baxter used to say, he says, as a dying man to dying men. That's how we ought to preach, guys. We don't know if we have tomorrow. I had an uncle that passed away last night. Okay, got word. We don't know if we have tomorrow. Have people heard the good news? 
So the problem that Paul brings up, if you look at verses 2 and 3, Israel possesses zeal without knowledge. So zeal without knowledge is a runaway horse, guys, okay? Uh, We call this person a religious fanatic. Do you guys know any religious fanatics? If if you're not raising your hand, you might be one of the religious fanatics. (laughs) I know a bunch of them, okay? A lot of zeal, but there's not a lot of knowledge behind the zeal that they have or what they want to push. In his book, The Prodigal God, Timothy Keller, he writes this, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God to control him and to put him into a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical uh, fascinousness and piety, they are actually rebelling against his authority. You see, works without faith. That's what the second, second part of verse 3, you know, Paul's making this point here. They didn't understand the kind of righteousness that God wanted or even how to get it. So caution on trying to establish your own righteousness. And it can happen right here at Freedom Fellowship, guys. It can happen right here, right now. Hey, we're a good Bible-based Jesus-teaching church. Okay, well, you could be proud of yourself because, hey, I'm humbly following the Lord. Guys, pride is so ugly and so deceptive. Be careful. Now, there's a source. Okay, look at verse 4. For Christ, this is the source, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, The man who does those things shall live by them. So righteousness is found in Christ. I hope you got verse 4 underlined there. It is in him. Christ is the end of the law. In a sense, it's our aim rather than our termination. I love the Phillips translation and how they put this verse. For Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes in him. You see, Jesus brought an end to our futile attempts to become righteous through law-keeping. We couldn't do it. Even the best of us, we've still fallen short. We've all broken the law. Sometimes those who seem most religious, the most passionate about keeping the rules, they need the gospel the most. They have not grasped Righteousness that is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And they often most reject the most fiercely against the Lord. Righteousness was foretold by Moses here in verse 5. Okay, the reference is all the way back to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Now let's look at availability, okay, of God's righteousness. Okay, look at verse 6. It says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. 
Do we see the contrast of righteousness between verse 5 versus the righteousness of faith in verse 6 here? No one but Christ could make incarnation and resurrection happen. So no one can construct salvation on their own means apart from Jesus. Righteousness is something done for us, not something that we do ourselves. You guys see the negative in verse 6 and 7 here? Okay? One need not search the heavens or descend into the deep to find righteousness, but it's the positive of verse 8. It is through Christ as near as one's mouth and heart. And Moses predicted this all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, near you in verse 8 here, let's distinguish between what's possible in theory and actually realized in practice because Christ is potentially near you but is only realized in practice when you confess and believe. You see, it is as close as a decision of the heart and a declaration of the mouth. Look at verses 9 and 10 here. Here's the reception that if you, it's an if, you have to do this, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So both one's heart and mouth need to be involved, guys. It is conceived in the heart. Do you believe it is a faith thing? It's not something we do. It's belief. I believe in my heart with all my heart that Jesus is Savior, that he can forgive my sin, that his promise of eternal life is real that he really did come and die on that tree on that cross 2,000 years ago and shed his own blood and he died and he rose again. I believe that. And I confess that with my mouth. Guys, the heart always means the center or the moral being. It's the center of our moral being. It actually includes intellect, feeling, will. Do a study on the heart in the scriptures. It is one of the neatest studies you'll ever do. But think about that, guys. Saving faith, it dominates our entire being, our minds, our feelings, our will. And as a consequence, guys, this faith faith will express itself through confession. How can we not confess that God is good? It is confirmed by the mouth, verse 9 and 10 here. So this is one of the most helpful portions of Scripture for Pointing the way to salvation. You want to share with somebody how to get saved? Circle 9 and 10 here. Open your Bible. Show somebody, hey, can you read to me Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10? This is how one is saved. And as we learned last time, guys, about God's choosing a people for himself, he also has arranged the way to come to faith through the hearing of the gospel and responding to it. So the heart and mouth really are a beautiful harmony of two voices. Notice nothing else is added here in the recipe to salvation. Did you guys see baptism? No no baptism, no serving, no tithing, nothing. You guys understand? 
Nothing can save us except for Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Can you confess that? Because if you do, (laughs) you're saved. But if you're placing your hope in, hey, I got wet one day, I got baptized as a baby, you'll probably find yourself in hell if that is your hope because that is unbiblical. That is not true. That is not salvation according to the word of God. Jesus Christ is salvation according to the word of God. So the belief is not mere verbal assent, okay? But it's really staking one's entire being in this truth. Do you truly believe it? I want to share with you guys one of the coolest quotes I've ever read by Spurgeon. I need a drink of water before I share it because it's that good. Honestly, like stuff like this that he writes that makes me like, hey, you've rightly labeled him as the prince of preachers, okay? Listen carefully, please. We believe everything which the Lord Jesus has taught, but we must go a step further and trust him. It is not even enough to believe in him as being the son of God and the anointed of the Lord, but we must believe on him. The faith that saves is not believing certain truths, nor even believing that Jesus is Savior, but it is resting on him, depending on him, lying with all our weight on Christ. That is the foundation of our hope. Believe that he can save you. Believe that he will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with him in unquestioning confidence. Depend upon him without fear as to your present and eternal salvation. This is faith which saves your soul. I agree. Many will say to me in that day, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, we can give lip service, guys, all day long. Yeah, Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. But are you all in? Is all of your confidence in him? Is your heart saying, yeah, it's Jesus only? Is that your confession, saying? I hope so. So let's look at the scope here that Paul lays out. Verse 11 says, For the scriptures say, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is impartial, guys. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It does not distinguish between a Jew and a Greek or a Gentile, okay? He draws on the Old Testament again, probably to show the salvation by faith has always been God's plan. It's nothing new. Say you become really ill and it comes time to take your medicine and you ask me to go get it for you, okay? But then I take it for you. Is that going to do you any good? 
No, obviously you must take it yourself. So you must seek salvation yourself. doesn't matter if your pastor is saved. doesn't matter if mom and dad were believers. It doesn't matter if your, st- your spouse has confessed Jesus Christ and believes in their heart. It doesn't matter if mom and dad or grandpa and grandma, there's been faith in Jesus in our family forever. You must seek salvation for yourself and repent of your sin personally and believe and obey for yourself. You must seek salvation for yourself, guys. Many people live in the show-me state. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, when it comes to living for Christ, it's, hey, show me, (laughs) then I'll believe. But it's believe and I'll show you. And isn't that how it works with the Lord? You put your faith in him, and it's just like, whoa. The blinders come off. <laughs> Everything isn't gray any longer. It's very black and white. Jesus really is the savior of the world. He really is the only way to your eternal life. The gospel is the only good news. It's very black and white. And then you begin to see God. You begin to see the supernatural you see truth. You see, when we consider verse 12 here, when he's talking about there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek in sinfulness, guys, so there's no difference when it comes to salvation. It's the same. In Christianity, all men are equal. Okay, it's all pennies are equal. Whoa, wait. <laughs> don't pennies, they, they have different dates, don't they? Different letters from where they were minted. Some are more scarred than others. Some are brighter and newer than others. Yes, even a coin collector may give you more for one, but if you bring it into the store, guys, it's worth one cent. So why then are they equal? Because the only value in any of them is the image that they bear. Are you in Christ Jesus? Do you bear his image? You see, both Jew and Gentile have come to Christ, both bear Christ's image in their life. It's universal. Look at verse 13. Anyone calling on the name of the Lord will be saved. I got a fun t-shirt on. whosoever. You guys made me remember me talking about this. Okay? I'm like, how cool would it be to have a shirt that just said whosoever? Well, Mary Smith's made this one up for me, and I got other shirts from other of you in the fellowship that say whosoever, and they're fun to wear, because people might ask, hey, why do you have a shirt that just says, you know, whoever? What's up with that? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 is what's up with that. Whoever believes on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Think about that, guys. Whoever. And I'm glad it didn't say here in my Bible, if Landon Churchill calls on the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. Because I went on Facebook this week and I searched Landon Churchill. There's six other ones out there. Well, what if the Landon Churchill got saved as one of them and not me? But isn't the whoever a cool camp to be in? Because that encompasses who? Whoever. All of us. I love it. Don't you guys love this verse? You can be a whoever. 
You can believe in your heart on Jesus Christ. You can confess him with your mouth that he is Lord. You can do that. Whoever. It isn't just them or maybe them. It's anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I know you're all going to go home later and get on Facebook. Hey, how many of you are out there? Some of you guys have some really common names. You probably got hundreds. Anyways, I'm thankful that my parents called me Landon. A little unique. Um, Let's look at verse 14. This is the presentation in verse 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach... Unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So Paul presents a compelling case for faithful witnessing here. Paul shifts from acceptance or rejection to its delivery. One doesn't just call on the name of the Lord. A messenger is needed first. He must proclaim the good news and then must hear, have faith, and then call on the name of the Lord. This is the process God has ordained for scattering seed of the gospel throughout the world. And this charge, guys, is given to the church to take up the task of evangelism deliberately and passionately. And I want to thank you guys for being here this morning. Taking church seriously. God's ordained it. We are not to forsake it. This time, and some people ask, why, why do you guys take the word so seriously? How, how can you teach for over an hour? Because the church is to be given to the equipping of the saints. It's something we want to take seriously. And I want to thank you guys for partnering with us, supporting the work of this ministry. Guys, we're not here to build a big church. We're here to be equipped to go share Jesus with this world. If you're looking for a social club, this is probably not the church for you. But I would ask you to hang out, stay, and grow, and get biblical. Because if you are a Christian, This is why we're here, guys. We get to live the gospel out loud to this world. And some of you guys might wonder, why are you always talking about evangelism? Why are you always teaching on this? Because this is the heart of God. This is why he came into the world. And we want to be deliberate in it, and we want to be passionate about it. Show of hands, how many of you guys know somebody that doesn't know Jesus? Yeah, I know a few. You don't have to look too far. There's a world that needs to hear, they need to know. And CNN is not going to be sharing it with the world. And that's all they're hearing, guys. So thank you. How shall they hear without a preacher? Conceivably, guys, God could have chosen any means to get the good news out, right? The message of salvation. Nevertheless, guys, He's chosen to work through you. 
in me. Well, would an angelic being be much better at that? <laughs> he could fly around and declare it from the heavens. Well, that's going to happen during the tribulation. We're not living in the tribulation, guys. Okay, we are here in this dispensation, this time of grace. He's called the church to go and to share the good news. So when we look at verse 15, God's looking for people with beautiful feet. So the question is, how are your feet looking, guys? God's looking for people with beautiful feet to carry the gospel to the lost. These beautiful feet, they speak of activity. It speaks of motion, of going, of moving. It's the work of preaching the gospel. And this really ought to ignite our hearts for unreached people around the world, around us. Do you guys know that honeybees share the wonderful, you know, the wonderful things they find? Hey, come check it out, okay? Buzz is happening. There's sweet nectar over here. And immediately, guys, they're going to let as many other bees know <laughs> as they can. There's going to be the buzz about what's going on. There's even a little dance these bees will do, a little bee boogie or whatever they call it. But can't we do the same with Christ's sweet nectar? How can we not share him with others. I love Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Nothing better than Jesus Christ, guys. Evangelism is allowing Christ to live in and through us that who we are and what we do and what we say become the very expression of who he is is what he did and what he has said. I want to ooze with scripture. You guys ever have that longing as a believer? You're so saturated with the truth of God, okay, that that's what just comes out. I'm going to share the word of God. Oh, and one more thing, guys. Note here the glad tidings. Did you catch that? I like this, glad not sad tidings, glad tidings. It should be joyous news that we are bringing, okay? Jesus forgives sins. He can forgive your sin. He gives eternal life. You can have heaven and be with God, who is awesome forever. This is good stuff. Will you turn to him? The reception, take a look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you with jealousy by those who are not a nation. And I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me, and I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. 
Verse 16, guys, yet not all. Did you guys catch that? Not all are going to believe this wonderful message. I mean, Jesus came to his own, and they rejected him. Um, how many of you guys have heard of D.L. Moody before? Awesome. Uh, evangelist, Chicago land, got a few books in our bookstore over here on his life. Um, I love a quote uh, from there. It says, he, he says this, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith did not seem to come. And one day I read in the 10th chapter of Romans, now faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I had closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now open my Bible and begin to study and faith has been growing ever since. How many of you guys want to grow in your faith? Open the Bible each and every day, guys. Faith comes by hearing. Some teach that God gives you the faith to believe. That's unbiblical. I'm still looking for that scripture. What we do see in the word of God, faith comes by where? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what are we going to share with people? We need to be sharing the word of God if that's how they're going to hear. Faith is not a contract. Faith is a surrender, isn't it? And surrender is a beautiful thing. So what did we learn from Paul so far about winning the lost? Well, did you guys catch we need to be caring, right? Verse 1, yearn, beg, beseech, plead, okay? Have that burden. You need to be praying, right? The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, we're told in Scripture. If you don't have a heart for the lost, I can probably guess how your prayer life is and what you pray for. We need to be praying for our neighbors. We need to be praying for the lost, different people groups around the world. And if we're praying, we're going to be doing verse 17 in sharing. If you're really praying, you will be sharing. They say the fire of God is in the heart. It will melt the lead that's in our feet. <laughs> okay? If you're really on fire for the Lord, you're going to go. You're going to go share. Okay? I go down to the food pantry every Wednesday for almost 12 years now. And I'll tell you guys the real reason I'm there. It's not about getting people who need food, food. I want to share Jesus. That's why we do what we do. Hopefully, guys, it's in your heart the things God's placed, the burdens, the people, the places he wants you to go to bring that gospel of peace, okay? That there's a fire that is well stoked. And I don't know about you guys, that's one, one of the blessings of fellowship, coming together on a regular basis, okay? We fire each other up. I saw a quote this morning on Facebook from Billy Graham, and he talked about the coals in a fire. How many of you guys enjoy a nice fire, Okay. Well, how do you keep that fire stoked and going? Well, you keep those coals close together, 
okay? And I feel like that's what church does, okay? Because if we're left on our own, we're going to go out pretty quick. <laughs> but if we're together to stoke each other up, that's kind of what I feel about times of fellowship. We stoke each other up, okay? Um, it's good to do, so don't forsake it. Um, so who would you like to share? Let's get a little practical here before we move on, okay? Because unless we actually name, actually, who do we want to share, okay, the, the goodness, the good news of Jesus Christ with? Maybe it's in a sphere of our family. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your social uh, life. But what could you use as a springboard in those relationships, okay, to speak about Jesus Christ, okay? What might pique his or her, her interest in talking about spiritual things? What thought-provoking questions can you ask them? What scripture passage maybe would be good to memorize, to have on hand to be able to share with someone? And do you have a Christian worldview or perspective of things that are going on in the world. So when you talk about vaccines and mandates in these things, hey, do you have an internal perspective? Do you have the biblical mandate when we speak to these events? CTR, what's God's view when it comes to racism? What does the Bible say? And as Christians, how should we speak into those things? How can we bring Jesus to this world, guys? What tough questions can we anticipate a person might ask? I think sometimes it's good to think ahead on those things. What are you reading? What materials do you have? What audiobooks are you listening to? Are there things that are going to equip you and have you ready to give a defense for your faith when somebody asks for the hope or why you have the hope you do in Jesus? So don't feel the pressure. I think a lot of us, hey, they need to get saved. Here's the gospel and pray with me right now to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Don't expect people to pray. Don't even pressure them to pray to receive the Lord. You just be faithful in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If salvation is God's work and not ours, how relieved, guys, we really should feel from the pressure of sharing the truth about Jesus. We just walk we are light, we are salt, Jesus does the saving, we do the sharing. So saints, I want to keep you guys in a place where your ears are attentive to the Spirit of God and his leading, okay? Let your discussions about your faith be very clear and competent when you are speaking with others. And keep your feet beautiful, because if you're walking in the world's junk and then you have the opportunity <laughs> to share the gospel. People are going to see the junk. Let them see these beautiful feet prepared with the gospel of peace, guys. So, in verses 18 and 19, we have Israel set before us here. They heard, they knew Israel was responsible for rejecting the Messiah jealously, we're, you know, comes up in verse 19 here. They, we're going to speak a lot more of that in chapter 11 yet this morning here. But the Gentiles didn't seek, yet found, according to verses 20 and 21. And I think that's a beautiful picture 
okay? God holding out his hands all day, right? What does it mean when you hold out your hands to someone? Helping someone, giving them something, grabbing them, giving them a warm hug, an invitation to come, right? So though the Jews didn't grab his nail-scarred hands, the Gentiles did, and God saved them. So will you accept salvation today? I sure hope so. Just because you're at church doesn't make you a believer in Jesus Christ. Accepting God's gift in Christ Jesus is what's going to save you. So Israel's past rejection, their per, or their uh, sorry, their election and their rejection in chapter 10 now brings us to chapter 11, which talks about their future reception. We'll move a little faster through this. But the question that really comes around chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, is Israel cast away? Now again, a lot of churches right here in the valley believe that. They've bought into bad theology, which teaches replacement theology saying we the church have taken the place of Israel because God's done with Israel that's bad teaching bad theology um, when it comes to eschatology or end time stuff uh, some have cast Israel away using verse 12 here in chapter 10 that's their argument but as we just saw guys there isn't a distinction in sins and salvation but there still is a distinction nationally as Paul speaks here now a lot of people who twist these chapters often fall into a reformed camp and they'll use these for talking about God electing saving certain people and damning other people to hell when we study the scriptures context is needed and everything, I haven't inserted anything here. This is God speaking about the Jewish people nationally. And when election is spoken about, it's always a people group, nationally speaking. He's not talking about individuals. So we need context, okay? It will keep us safe. It will keep our theology good. Um, but I also want you guys not, or don't forget the timing here. This after the death and the resurrection of Christ and yet he's still talking about the nation of Israel God's not done with Israel guys they're not without future look here in chapter 11 verse 1 I say then has God cast away his people certainly not for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin God has not cast away his people for or whom he's foreknew or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer uh, grace. Otherwise, 
work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them the spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And as David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. So there is a future for Israel. And Paul's first proof here for that is him himself being an Israelite. You guys can jot down 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So it was in the beginning of the church age, guys, or this age of grace, that God saved Jewish, a Jewish man who hated Christ and his followers. He became a lover of Jesus and a very fervor spokesman for the Lord. And his name, Paul. So the reasoning here, guys, if Israel was cast away, how could Paul be saved? And then in verse 2, when it comes to this foreknowledge, God never goes back on his word. Do you guys know that? He never goes back on his word. God had not rejected those whom he had chosen for his people, his special people. Foreknowledge and rejection are incompatible. So foreknew all Israel. Of course not, okay? Why? Because we just spent two chapters. Are you guys getting what's been laid down, the context here? These last two chapters saying that not all Jews have come to Christ. He foreknew national Israel and his covenant people. So when it talks about this remnant in verses 2 to 6 here, no matter how dark the day, God always had a remnant in Israel. Even in times of great apostasy, even then, there was a remnant, guys. Even in the days of Elijah, which our men just studied this last Thursday morning. We're back in Elijah. We just had retreats, the men and women on the life of Elijah. It's just so cool. Now we see it here in Romans. He thought, you know, he was all alone when Israel found itself in this national crisis. Other examples, we have Noah and his family, right? God was sparing a remnant there. The Assyrian captivity, there was a remnant. The Babylonian captivity, there was a remnant. Even Paul, a remnant himself, who now goes to preach the gospel to the Gentile world. And I think verse 5 is key. At this present time, there is a remnant. If God had forsaken Israel, how is there a remnant then? Of course he has not. And then grace in verse 6, four times. This is the grace of our God. John Stott said this. Um, he repeated the, the repeated promises in the Quran of forgiveness and compassionate and the merciful Allah are all made to be mere uh, meritorious, whose merits have been weighed in all his scales, whereas the gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving, the symbol of the religion 
of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. I hope you guys get that. It is by his grace. Now when it talks about verse 7 with the hardening, okay, blinded, that equals being hardened. The rejection of Israel was partial, but it was not total. And they're not beyond hope. Look at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Is Israel finished? Okay, did they fall beyond recovery? Well, if God was finished with Israel, he wouldn't waste time provoking them to jealousy, would he? Does that make sense? No, okay? So even in the rejection of Jesus, it is a part of God's plan to eventually bring Jews to faith, okay? Read the book of Revelation. God is dealing with the Israeli people, okay? Now, blessings, verses 12 to 14. Their fall and failures are a blessing to the Gentiles. So what will their faithfulness be? Well, if the Gentiles were blessed when the Jews rejected the Messiah, wow, right? How much more of a blessing will Israel eventually be when they actually receive him? And that's going to happen one day, and that's going to be really, really cool. So verse 14, some Christians have gone to the extreme to consider our Jewish friends as followers of believers. Well, we all believe in the same God, right? They're fellow believers, um, but they've rejected God as Messiah. (laughs) There's a big problem there. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Jesus, guys. It is in him, okay? No, not just the English name, Jesus, okay? You can call him Yeshua, Hamashiach, Isa, Isamasi, Yasha, Jesus, if you're Spanish. The point is, have you received Jesus of the Bible, the Savior of the world, as your Savior personally. You see, Jesus is not only the only way to the Father. Through him alone does man find forgiveness for sin. He is it, guys. He is the fulfillment of the law, the covenants of all that sacrificial system. It is him. So I talk a lot about loving Muslims, for I see many Christians not doing so, and some uh, even seem, you know, <laughs> feel good about it. But I want to ask you guys, do you love Jews? We need to, guys. Do you have Jewish friends? If so, you might start sharing the love of the Messiah with them. Do you guys know that the worldwide population in Israel is just over 14 million Jews? In Israel, 14 million Jews. Guys, here in America, 46% of all Jewish people live right here in our own backyard. We have Jews right here, okay? On Saturday, my wife Sonny and Finn are going to go visit with an a older man who's Jewish. We've been sharing for, for, for years. Some of you guys know him. 
be praying for him. He's heard the gospel over and over again, but there are Jewish people right here in our own backyards, guys. Share the love of Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up. Okay. Not broken off for good. Look at verse 15. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which the wild were wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, and blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what's this deal with all these roots and branches? Well, life-giving sap flows from the root of the tree through the trunk into the branches, right? Okay, so let's get that picture. This is where life comes from. God's covenant blessing to Abraham, the root of Israel, courses through the limbs of the Jewish nation. So even in their rejection of the Messiah, it couldn't stop the upward flow and cause God to revoke his covenant. Okay, so grafted in, the graft or the shaft, that's what I like to call this, okay? Here, Paul is using this allegory of this olive tree here. Jeremiah used it too, the prophet. The Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and good fruit with the noise of great tumult. He has kindled fire on it and its branches are broken. That's Jeremiah eleven sixteen. So don't be proud, but we need to walk humbly, guys. 
and remember it's all grace. It's all grace. So understand that normally this whole grafting process is exactly the opposite. Okay, the gardener normally grafts an orchard quality branch to a wild stock. It's never the opposite. By reversing the procedure, Paul shows us that in God's orchard, the true value of the root, not the branch, and even the worthless branch can produce good fruit when divine life flows through it. So in verse 21, he might not spare you either, okay? Lose salvation? No. The context, again, is what? A national blessing. Remember the context. This is one of the Arminians' go-to verses about losing your salvation. Again, it's out of context. The Calvinists go to these scriptures to make their point. Again, out of context, okay? Enough said there. I don't want to say more, but point is, let's be biblical as Christians. What does God say? The olive tree, guys, is a tree of favor, not salvation, okay? Snip, snip, right? Verse 22, 23, and 24, okay? Severity or sternness, we could say. The Lord is severe to some, but he is fair to all. So what if the Jewish nation became receptive to the Messiah, okay? Would he restore them? (laughs) Absolutely, right? So Israel's future is laid out for you and I in verses 25 to 29 here. So until the faithful or the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in other words, when the Gentile elect have come to faith, and don't miss verse 26 and 27, okay, uh, God's ultimate purpose for Israel, okay, that all of Israel would be saved. And it's kind of cool. Things are coming into place prophetically. The people are back in the land. The stage is really set for the great tribulation to go down, okay? He's going to deal with his people. He's not done with them. All Israel saved? Yeah. During the millennium, guys, they're going to look on whom they pierced. And they will mourn for him. They're going to see, oh boy, Jesus, Yeshua, you really are the Messiah we've been waiting for. We missed it. We crucified you. But here you are again. You returned. They're all going to be saved during the millennium. I also want to note, guys, when this is, it's the beginning of the millennium. What he will do, he will turn away ungodliness. Why? It's because of the covenant with Israel that he's made. And when? Well, when their sin is dealt with. Pretty cool. So let's close up this chapter in this doxology that Paul lays down for. Do you guys know doxology is a hymn of praise? How many of you guys enjoy hymns? Okay. Our family just started, we, we each got a hymnal. So we have five hymnals in the Churchill house. Okay. And we're going to be sharing, we're going to be looking and reading through. And if there's a really cool hymn, cool words, we're going to go on YouTube and find out the melody. And then we're going to sing those praises together. And that's good to do. That's why hymns are so good. And this doxology, this hymn of praise at the end of chapter 11 is one of the neatest in the Bible. Let's read uh, verse 31. It says, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet you have not obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so 
these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has not committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, (laughs) the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Is that not really cool? I love this. All right, a few thoughts on this doxology really quick. Because this is, I think, a very appropriate finale to this awesome theology. Okay, all this doctrine we've learned thus far in Romans. It actually concludes the portion of doctrine that Paul teaches in Romans. And you guys will see gears change big time as we get into chapter 12. It's more how we practically live as Christians. But here, guys, the mercy of God, okay? Who but God could have conceived a plan that would turn disobedience into an occasion for mercy? Only God can do this, guys. Reaching out universally to all who would believe. This is so beyond us. This is God. Dwight Pentecost referred to mercy as God's ministry to the miserable. I think that is so cool. Do you guys know that God's mercy is an active compassion? He's abundant in mercy. A lot of us want to cast stone, stones and bring judgment. You're missing the heart of our God. He's a heart of mercy. Well, do you know what they've done? It's not good. It's not right. It's wrong. They deserve judgment. Yeah, we all deserve judgment, guys. Aren't we glad that he is merciful? Absolutely. And it says here, guys, only God in his unsearchable mercy would have reached so low <laughs> to lift them so high. He was committed to Israel, guys. Bound, shut them up. Here, Paul uses a figure, you know, figure of a prison. Okay? And with the second image, okay, our disobedience that has locked us in this spiritual prison in which there is no possibility of escape until God's mercy springs open those prison locks. And then the mind of God, okay, I, I love that Paul inserts this here. He praises God's knowledge and his wisdom, yet at the same time saying that it's beyond human understanding. This is cool. Guys, it's unwise to fathom the unfathomable. We can't do it. The depth, he says, the things are hidden in deep mystery, so deep that no human knowledge will ever know it. Unsearchable and un fathomable past finding out beyond reach both are hunting terms for you hunters you might like this unsearchable really indicates an animal that's untrackable unfathomable describes one who is undetectable guys we can't track god's thoughts do you guys know that his ways are way beyond ours and he is much wiser than us he is so other 
That is our God. And even if you could, it would probably be so foreign to us that we wouldn't even recognize them. That's the reality. So verses 34 and 35, there's three questions now that don't have an answer. Did you guys catch it? One, can anyone explain God? And then he says, hey, anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? And then the third one is, has anyone done God such a big favor that God owes him something? (laughs) No. (laughs) That's how far beyond God is. So we can't explain all the purposes and the plans of God, but we can worship and we can praise him for who he is. Okay? The majesty of God. That's what verse 36 is laying down for you and I. Okay? Do you find yourself in awe of him? How majestic and awesome our God is. Of him, he is the source, the origin It is God who set everything into motion by his creative word. Through him, he is the agent or the channel. Everything that exists is sustained and is directed by him. So to him, he's the goal. Do you guys get this? He is the goal. He is our destiny. All things consist for his glory so the end result of bible study guys or studying doctrine should be worship do you guys get that it is for worship so can we end this wonderful doxology with the appropriate amen right we can we can do it in joyful confidence because we have a good god so father we are thankful for these chapters we thank you for your word lord the clarity the wisdom that you choose to share with us it is right and it is good it definitely turns our eyes to you jesus for we know that there is none other but you you alone are good and savior thank you for loving us thank you for the cross thank you for your faithfulness to israel to your word to us who have called upon your name, who have believed in your heart, who have confessed with our mouths that you are Lord. God, even if we're unfaithful, you are faithful. Thank you so much, God. You are truly exalted and praised among us. God, there is none like you. Thank you. Amen.